Hi, welcome to What Chance. I'm your host, Karin Elias. This podcast is about people who have been to prison. It's about their life before and after prison. I talk to educators, social workers, activists, and the formerly incarcerated. I want to find out what happened. Are some people at higher risk of going to prison? And what is it like to reintegrate into society? What does the justice system and society really care about? Punishment or rehabilitation? Come, join me. My guest today is Joe Navarro. Joe is a father of two boys. He is a business owner together with his brother-in-law. And he joins me from sunny San Diego. And I'm jealous because I'm in New York and it's really cold. So you are a business owner. What is it you do in this business? And when did you start it? Gosh, I do what I love. It's a sales agency. My brother-in-law and I started uh, about a year ago. It's called Forgotten Tongue. It was uh, grabbed from the notion of, you know, the old school type of selling, just face-to-face, mano-a-mano, going out, not being handed down to me, but I go out and find those people to speak to, and I introduce myself, and I introduce the idea of this company. And uh, even though 90% of them already have a vendor, you just get to know them. They get to see who you are. And, and it started off with the pest control company that I was helping my brother-in-law get in during the pandemic. And now I'm working for uh, three different companies. Uh, one is called the Lovo Automation Technology. We provide uh, smart technology to mainly uh, residential homes built in La Jolla, these mansions, you know. Uh, I just did a bid yesterday and closed a deal, uh, thanks to God, for 73000 I went from selling an $89 commission for one deal for 89. And that was at best 89 bucks was the decent deal to now closing deals at 73,000, which the commission is about 5%. So blessed. And of course, on the other hand, I work for a, a company doing uh, security systems, uh, ADT security systems, which I love being able to help people now set up a perimeter protection in the event anyone comes into the home through the window it sets off a sensor, which is S-line encrypted. It's not a sensor that you buy at Home Depot that basically can interfere with simple uh, a control or whatnot, but it's top of the line equipment. So I'm able to protect families now uh, and they need it. Who doesn't need a security system when they buy a million dollar home or when they buy a $700,000 home? If you want to protect your children from not only someone coming in, but from them leaving at night, you get yourself that's perimeter protection and we do it. So that's the other company I'm working for right now, which I love to. And uh, what's interesting is I lost that job. I started working for them about a year ago. And because of my criminal history, when they did a background check and trying to give me my license, they determined the Bureau of Investigative Services that I had a criminal history and a felonies. So they removed my licensing and I couldn't work for them. And the last company I worked for, is a wholesale payments, which is credit card processing that basically go from business to business. So, you know, that is impressive for many reasons. One is you said you started this during the pandemic and, you know, during the pandemic, 
we stayed home, especially in the beginning. And you started a business where you had to go out and talk to people and that was successful. And, you know, the other reason is you were released from prison during the pandemic. So I'm sure there were adjustments. You mentioned you lost a job because of that history. So how was that being released now into freedom? And really it wasn't the freedom maybe you expected to have. Oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, you know, it felt almost um, moving like a snail, but even worse, almost cornered. When I was released from state prison, I remember because of uh, the law that allowed me to go home, it's called the Youth Defender Law. So what they did is they, they had a hearing on December the 10th, but they had 120 days to determine and to have my paperwork processed through different channels to then be able to release me, right? Ultimately, the governor was the one who had a team who would then determine if they would overturn the board of parole on their decision. So within 120 days, CDCR had to also, the California Department of Corrections had to also process my application, act like I was gonna be released and have some of my paperwork ready. So when I was released, I can get my ID, I can get my social security, et cetera, et cetera. Well, someone dropped the ball in that process. So after a hundred days, I had not been called to the office. And I remember uh, the day before they released me, they called me and said, hey, you're gonna go home tomorrow. The government did not overturn your decision. And so, of course, that immediately uh, triggered an elation. I was in euphoria. I couldn't believe it. I'm finally going home. I had a 22-year sentence, right? So it almost felt at the age of 24 when I started, like I was never going to go home. And mind you, that's a life sentence in itself. 22 years, uh, that's one-third or one-fourth of a person's life if he lives at 100 years. And so uh, the thought of going home was like far, but it was there. And even worse... During my sentencing, I wasn't aware that I signed for two strikes. So when the judge, before he dropped the dabble, uh, I remember he said, uh, mind you, you signed for two strikes. You committed an armed robbery. And in the in the process, you had a possession of a firearm. Those are two strikeable offenses. And you had a previous strike in 2000 for assault with a deadly weapon other than a firearm. So you got a total of three strikes, Mr. Navarro, mind you, if when you're released from state prison or while you're incarcerated, if you ever commit a crime again, you can and you will be struck out. So even going home, I was already at odds. So mind you, here we go fast forward. On the day of my release, I'm super happy. But the lady who calls me into the program office, the state worker at CDCR, she goes, I'm so sorry that I didn't call you before to have you fill out this, paper, this paperwork. I didn't pay attention to what she really meant. Weeks later, I'm out and I can't get certain documents because of uh, that paperwork hadn't been processed yet. So now I'm trying to get my uh, social security and I can't because uh, I don't have other documents that I need. And even worse, the social security office is closed and you can only make an appointment if it's an urgent matter. So I can't even get my social security. And in order for me to get my, uh, my ID, I need other pertinent documents. So it was just a very slow process. What was worse is not so much that because at that moment I was like, okay, fine. Um, I need to be patient. I need to continue to shake the tree. But when I was going to be released from the transitional program, which was six months later, I didn't have my driver license. I didn't have my vehicle. I didn't have my actual uh, transportation to get to work. I was working building pools for $700 a paycheck every two weeks. 
Mind you, rent in San Diego, as beautiful as the weather is, is expensive in San Diego. So rent was easily at uh, $1,200, $1,300 for a studio. And I wanted, I had my son, my, uh, at that time he was 15 years old. Uh, I had him on my sister's house, right? So um, I needed to get a place and I couldn't. And I remember feeling like a snail and I needed to come up with a plan. And one thing I had learned in prison if I didn't like something, I needed to do something about it. You know, I couldn't wait on external factors to fall upon me because it just wasn't my locus of control. So I had to do something. You know, once I was released, I couldn't afford rent and I hated my job. And so I had to make choices. So let me ask you this, because you, so there's a lot you just said. One is when you come out of prison, you need to get ID. So that means that inside of prison, you don't have an ID. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you have an ID. You have a CDCR ID that has your CDC number. I had an F number. And uh, so you carried, you had to walk around with your ID. You cannot walk around with this CDCR state ID. But that is only for inside of prison. Why couldn't prison give you an ID that you can use when you come out? You don't have to go through this whole process? Good question. I think that's where that lady dropped the ball. So they can't even give me a state ID. So when it boiled down to now leaving the program, that's where I felt the difference of the pandemic. And I didn't have no transportation, so I relied on a vehicle, which was my coworker, who was a cool guy named Jose. Um, he used to give me a ride. He used to live, thanks to God, five minutes away from that program in Escondido. But now I had to leave that transitional program. And so with the pandemic, I, I was thinking about going into an Airbnb and renting that place out for a month until I finished that DUI class that had my driver license suspended since 2004. I had to finish that class. And then once I finished that class, I had a little bit of money saved up to buy a car. I moved to San Diego, lost the job. And, um, Got my driver license four weeks later, bought me a car, uh, a car that I had seen in prison on movies and shows. I used to see those cars in 2008. I used to say, I would love to have one of those cars. They look nice. So it was a Lincoln Town car I saw on the show. It was like a navy blue, classy, not on rims, just stock, beautiful with leather interior. And I used to say, that's a beautiful car. I would love to have one of those. Mind you, this is in 2008, 2009, I think it was. I still had about 15 years to serve. And so, uh, and I bought it for 3,500 bucks and the neighbor, I ended up picking up a job for her. She wanted me to install a vinyl fence and pour cement. And she gave me uh 10,600 bucks. She goes, if you could do it for less than that, I won't give it to the general contractor. You could do this job for me. And she loved me. She was like a good family friend. And I did that for her. I didn't know how to do it. I had someone pouring the cement, someone who knew how to do it. I YouTubed the installing of a vinyl fence. I went in and purchased a vinyl fence for way less because the guy that owned the actual fence company uh, thought I was a salesman. He told me, I sell them by like $24 a, a yard or a foot for the vinyl fence, but to you, I'll give it to you for 21. And if you sell me more, I'll give it to you for 19. And I said, well, let me pick up the first 103 feet for at 21 bucks. And when his actual worker gave it to me for more expensive, I said, hold on, hold on. Your boss told me at $21 a foot, let me get that revised. He goes, let me talk to the boss and I'll go ahead and get back to you. So then I went from picking up a vinyl fence that went for like 3,600 
to 2100 bucks. Save there. So it was beautiful. That was my second job. So let me ask yeah. you something because what you're describing is something like you love sales, it seems like you love the challenge. You, it seems like you're turning a situation that's maybe not so great around into something that works for you. And where did you learn this? Was this something you always knew how to do? How did you learn this? You know, uh, it kind of brings me back to a program when I was in prison. We were in a substance abuse program. Our counselor, her name was April in the level one prison. She asked a question around the 12 of us. The group was called the 300 Club. All of them were lifers. If not, they're guys like myself that had lengthy prison terms, whether for bank robberies, picking up 30 years, murders. Uh, and between all 12 of us, we had over 300 years already in prison. She said, what could you live without? And I said, meaning. Without meaning, it's difficult. And so what helped me in life was finding meaning in my situations, kind of almost like you had to reframe my perspective. I had to. And I learned that from the very outset. I had to look for something different and find something good that I can bring out of my situation. Mind you, I had incurred a 22-year sentence. What is worse is it wasn't like I was going to go to rehab for 22 years in front of a pond in the mountain in San Diego. No, I was going to the most notorious prisons in California perhaps even in the United States, level fours. Uh, I went to Calipatria State Prison where it was uh, known for correctional officers fearing convicts and inmates fearing prison guards. When I got there, we were on a lockdown because of a riot against not other racists, which are common in prisons, rather riots against prison guards by large numbers. So when I got there, I had to learn to reframe my way of thinking. I, I couldn't see it for what it was. So I used to use marijuana to cope with my feeling stress, what they call it now, anxiety. And I tended to overblow. I would drown in a cup of water. So I had learned to, okay, let me see, what can I do about this? How can I see something better out of the situation? And that's what I did. I had to uh, learn to have options. Like if I don't like something, I'm going to find a different option. I was working for a company and I didn't like the schedule. I went, called around and found another security company, right? So signed the paperwork, I started working by myself at my own time. Options, 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 you have to, you know? And that's where I learned in prison. You know, you say you learned it in prison, but it could have gone the other way because you're describing a situation that's fairly violent. Right. I mean, you could have slid more into that. So but you said that there were programs that you went to and they helped you. Yeah, absolutely. It all started off in um, county jail. I woke up from a nightmare into almost a reality that could have been perceived as another nightmare because mine, I was free. I was in society. I had a vicious cycle. Uh, that went out of control, not only from drugs, but violence and crime. Crime in itself is a drug. It's an adrenaline rush. I started off with doing beer runs. And on the night of my crimes, I had committed uh, two carjackings and a series of robberies and attempted robberies. 
And of course, mind you, driving without a driver license, possession of a firearm, so serious of crimes on the night of my crime. But mind you, it didn't begin there. It began with doing a beer run months prior. So I got to prison and now it was from a nightmare of a lifestyle that I was stuck in my mind to now having to say, okay, what do I really want to do? Do I want to get buried in prison? Because I got three strikes. This is not a place to play. Uh, this is a place to either you, anything you do, you better give it your best. And I had that nature of like anything I like to do, I like to go to the other end of it. And that's what I did in crime. And that's what I did in my drug use, right? Uh, I was the type of guy that even to today, if I'm listening to a song, you better bet I'm not singing it because it sounds cool. I'm listening to it because I'm living it, you know? So when I started studying in prison in Proverbs, when I would share them, it wasn't because I liked the way they sounded. It was because I loved the way they were applied and I tried to apply. And that's where it all began. The school of Proverbs in the book of uh, the Holy Scriptures. And that's what would help me. It was uh, sayings. For example, there was one that said, um, you know, if you speak many words, there does not fail to be transgression. But the wise one keeps his lips in check. Right. And so I would be very careful as to what I would say, how I would speak. Of course, I had to gradually implement it. Gradually, it wasn't like I did it from day one. No, it was like I would mess up and I would use that. And I would say, this is where I messed up. This is how I look. This is how I identified it. You know, instead of saying, I was right. I should have I should have punched him or I should have done this. Or I should have kept on. Who's not going to be talking to me like that? Or no, I would say, damn, I let my emotions go. I look like a fool. I look like a kid. I look like a little kid throwing tantrums. You know, this makes me think of what didn't happen for you before prison so that you could get out of that cycle because what you're describing it's like so now you are in prison or you started with jail and everything slows down everything that you had was interrupted and now there you are would there have been something that could have done that for you so you didn't have to go to prison or was it just you were like on this roll and it, it wouldn't have been possible Man, what a beautiful question. Uh, that reminds me of a gentleman. His name was Chuck. We were on the two yard and a guy asked me the same question. He said, hey, he said, uh, you know, it seems like this had to happen to you because this is who you are now. He had been in prison for 32 years, but he was trying to go home. And I told Chuck, I didn't have to come to prison. I didn't have to lose my childhood or my, my son's childhood. Both of my boys, I didn't have to lose their early years, their formative years for me to be who I am today. I didn't have to do this to these innocent people to be who I am now. They didn't have to pay for my irresponsibility, for my way of thinking, for me to change. And so uh, I needed to learn to cope with my feelings without using drugs. For me to smoke weed, then I changed my association. People who smoke weed, they're not the worst, but also that changes the people who you talk to, who you hang out with, the habits. And of course, weed also changes different habits. They could also go from weed to other drugs, right? And so uh, I started early on in my teens, about 15. And so I started becoming that into a habit. And of course, that limited my way of learning. I couldn't retain what I learned at different jobs. Uh, I didn't try hard enough and I didn't give it my best and I didn't consistently persevere. I didn't I didn't keep going until I met what I wanted, you know, instead I would give up early because I'd get tired, I'd get discouraged and I'd get lazy. So that's what it was, having to 
deal with my feelings and uh, knowing what I want. It was really also the circle of people that you were connected with that maybe didn't help you to slow down, maybe didn't show you another way. I mean, I'm not saying that it's the fault of others, but, you know, we do know so much more these days about drug use and we know so much more about if we have trauma in our lives and trauma doesn't have to be necessarily just something a big event it could be how are we treated in school right how are we treated in community and if we don't get you know to learn any tools to help us with that maybe we are looking for some outside solution that's really turning into harm yes absolutely i think uh your way of perceiving uh, events early on in your life you know, it's also important. That's, uh, you know, you can't go on living uh, as an adult looking at things from your childhood perspective, right? So it kind of goes back to one of my buddies in uh, on the two-yard, good friend of mine. He, had, he was in prison for committing brutal murder. And uh, we were walking in circles on the yard. He did 27 years in prison. So he asked me one day, how did you see your father when you were young? Like your, your stepdad, how did you see him? And so say I said, well, you know, uh, gosh, he, he hated me. He uh, he beat me a couple of times. He was very mean. He was rude. He seemed like a lion around cubs. I'll never forget that. He was very, like, dominant. I mean, super cool, you know, just dominant, just real serious. Then he says, how do you see him now? And I remember I paused. Like, that was almost like a trick question. Like, where was he going? With? And uh, I said, well, now I understand. I'm like. He was a man that was willing to care for five stepchildren at a very young age. He loved my mother. He gave her 30 years of his life. He's caring for my son now when I was in prison. I go, he took care of five kids that weren't his. Who does that? At the age of 22, 23 years old, who does that? Right? So he had some anger issues. I understand who doesn't. But I was looking at him from an adult perspective. And so I needed to do that. And you can't go on in your late teens and your early uh, adult years still seeing your childhood experiences from that angle because then it hurts and it's difficult to cope and it's difficult to evolve and revolve in relationships and grow instead you fear you put people away and you mistrust people because of early childhood experiences and that has uh impact on work on support systems and so forth because you don't trust people and so that was one of the things that i had to address and uh, that took a lot of time, a lot of study. When I would go to these groups, I would pay attention to how I would feel around the 300 Club, for example. I would pay attention to how I would feel around ABP members. How would I feel? How, why did I feel this? Or why did I go home feeling, you know, this one feeling like what was triggered? And I would really sit down and consider, you know, because I was to an extent an introvert. I would go back home and, and focus, you know, what would happen, you know? You know, you're also saying, the people that were influential for you inside of prison, those were people who have killed, who have committed crimes and society might look at them as, wow, bad people, right? But what you are saying is they maybe had had the same need of a timeout and as sad as it is to have to go to prison, maybe that was the change that started it. And it seemed like they had a lot of wisdom to share with you. And maybe were those people um, 
more relatable to you because they had gone through some hard stuff. And I think when you kill somebody and you're in prison and you go and work through that, there is a lot of pain that's coming up. And if you are able to face this, you must be a very strong person, right? Wow, you're very insightful. So absolutely. Uh, there was a gentleman on the level four in Calipatra. And uh, by then I was, uh, you know, I used to love talking to people by nature. That was, that's always been my nature, but I would like to know why and how that was my question. I mean, going to prison was almost like, like an opportunity to like learn, learn why. So I remember asking this gentleman, uh, who's a cool Southerner. I said, Hey, uh, how did it feel to kill someone? And I'll never forget. He looked at me and like, you know, topics on the yard were who got to the yard, what happened to homeboy on what's that one other yard, who got stabbed, who rolled it up, who does this? I mean, it was numerous conversations. That was probably not one of them, especially on a level four yard, right? And he looked at me and he goes, uh, you know, I never thought about it. He goes, but he had it coming, you know, different gang member. He had it coming, but that was it. And then he left. The next day or a couple of days later, he came back and he goes, Man, Navarro, he goes, damn, man, you had me thinking about that question all night. Then he opened up and he goes, I didn't like to think about it because I wanted to get out. Well, not during the first year, first two years, I didn't want to. I wanted to get out. That's what I wanted to do. I was fighting my case. And then he said, but then I don't like to think about it because it was driving me crazy. Like, I killed this dude. Like, you know, it took his life. So uh, you fast forward some time later. And one day we were on the two yard and it was an officer. She had got stomped out on the level four yard. Now she was on a two yard. Poor woman, you know, she was just at the wrong place in the, in the prison where, you know, violence against officers was very common. But she said one day where I was walking through a, a section where I needed to be uh, patted down because I went from the central kitchen to the regular yard. And, you know, you needed to get searched. And she said, hey, uh, did you hear about the news? There was a guy who beat up a 90 year old man hit him, pushed him, and stole his uh, stuff. And uh, I was, was a 90-year-old man, huh? I go, man, that's horrible, you know? And she goes, uh, that dude needs to come to the foreyard and needs to get stomped out, right? I mean, I remember she was impressed because I go, well, actually, you know what? What would be better is if he can really come to his senses and realize what he did, because that's going to hurt him more. Like, then that's going to help him change. That's going to have a bigger impact. When he learns what he really did and he really embraces that, like, this is what I did to this man, He's going to cry and really feel, and that's going to help him and heal him. She goes, wow, like, you know, I appreciate your different nature about it, you know, because you can stomp someone out and guess what? You will not remove his foolishness, right? It won't happen. So that's only going to repeat the cycle of violence, which is where I'll begin at home, right? Can you explain this a little bit? What's a level two yard and a level four yard and what does stomped out mean? Okay, so a level four yard is a highly controlled prison uh, where, you know, you have a limited time uh, on the yard to play uh, sports. Most guys on a level four yard are maximum security um, where you're in there for either 20 years and up or a life term without the possibility of parole or a life term with the possibility of parole, right? So you have a lengthy prison term or the state considers you incorrigible. Uh, in other words, if you are on a five-year term and you're on the level four yard, that means that you did so much trouble on other yards that your points booked up so high up 
that they're going to put you in a high controlled setting where you're walked from your cell to medical, you're walked from the your cell to eat food, you are basically locked down often for 24 hours a day and you only go to the shower and your shower is locked. You go to the shower and you're only wearing boxers with a towel and the officer escorts you from your cell where the cell only opens at the press of their button, right? That's level four. It's a highly structured, controlled environment. And at level two, on the other hand, you know, you basically have uh, more yard time. You, instead of level four, you maybe have an hour, maybe two hours at best. On a level two yard, you're outside all day. You're living in a dorm setting. You don't even live in a cell. Your cell, I mean, in the level four, you live in like in a closet, seven feet by 12, maybe eight feet by 12, sink, the toilet where you shower in there. Some people never even leave that area. On a level two, you live in a dorm setting where you live in a cubicle where there's about 12 people in there. In California, there's 12 people easily, uh, six bunks when they're not really supposed to have that many, but you have about 12 guys in there and uh, it's still full but there's movement. You get to go to the bathroom, you get to go in the day room, you get to play cards, you get to go to the yard. There's no cell door that opens by itself. And you know, you're out and about, there's more freedom. And when people get stomped out is, uh, you know, you, you get your face pressed on the floor or getting kicked. That's what it means. And that is done by inmates to other inmates. Oh, yeah. In fact, that was horrible scenes. Uh, we used to see that uh, it would always be a two-on-one at best. That was uh, because you were being disciplined, you would call it. You know, if you had done something wrong, then 90% or 95% of the time, two against one uh, would leave the victim, the one guy, uh, being stomped out. And, uh, you, you know, you'd watch, you'd be on sitting down while the yard would go down. You'd hear the alarm sound. Ah! down down and of course the officers would you know either throw grenade bombs they're like peppermint bombs or they would shoot with rubber bullets while two guys are disciplining another individual for doing something that was perceived incorrect that was fighting was common so you know when yes. i listen to what you're saying i'm hearing that people are being controlled Right. It's like it seems like that's the goal. People are being controlled and people are being punished now. And this is from the correctional side. Right. So did you ever experience that? Because I would say, all right, if I think about a child, let's say my child did something wrong and I want to teach my child how to do it differently. I would maybe say, you know, this is not how we do it, but we do it this way. I would give an alternative. I would help them to see things differently. I would just lock them in the closet for a day, right? So what are you teaching a person that you're controlling and that you're punishing? So I, what, what I'm getting at is, is prison a place of rehabilitation? Good question. Prison could be a place of rehabilitation if you choose to. Uh, you could choose to get into a program, programs. You can fill your schedule every day where one day you, you go to the Narcotics Anonymous in the afternoon, the next day there's Alcoholic Anonymous, or you can go to the AVP program on the weekend, spend three days talking about just life and whatnot. And, uh, and then you can go back, choose your friends wisely, or you can go back and talk to some of the fellas who perhaps feel, you know, they have to put this persona 
of toughness to them, see how they're doing, and gradually kind of throw a few things in there where they can start thinking about what happened or just jokes, play sports with them. Yes, absolutely. You got no rent to pay. You have all this time. You got a place to sleep. You got food to eat. Uh, but you have something to address. It all starts. Let me see how I've been thinking. Let me see what I can do. And, if, and you could choose to have the worst attitude or you could choose to work on that attitude and uh, and come out one day. He was a gentleman that was going to go home, but his mom was crying during visits because of him having to uh, explain that he was going to go see one of his buddies or his crime. I guess he had to go handle something with them. And he was a cool gentleman. He was all tattooed up, you know, in his face, arms and a real cool gentleman. I remember I told him, I said, look, man, you came to prison. You were hesitant. And many times you did not react violently to those who try to initiate violence. Right. Because you wanted to go home. Right. So you didn't do that. You hesitated because you had a reason to go home. Now you're going home and you're telling your mother and your dad they're crying because you're telling them what you're going to go do to what's his name. Once you hit him and give him what you feel, he comes back and hits you and gives you what he feels. And then you go back and you basically go in circles until someone gets killed. You come back to prison. If you want to go home, you have to address those issues nowadays. Like, do you want to go ahead and process your feelings right now and think about what you're going to do? What's going to happen? How can you see this from a better perspective? Because you're going to have to do it sooner or later. Otherwise, you'll die in prison. And we do know that the recidivism rate is pretty high for somebody coming out of prison after, I think, one to three years. A high percentage of people end up in prison again unless they participate in some of these programs we know reduces that chance. And a lot of these programs, as I understand, are based on volunteers coming into the prisons, which I think is a challenge during the pandemic because those programs are closed, right? Yeah, definitely. These volunteers, something about them empowers them to want to go into this setting that is depressing to say the least, right? It's colored as walls, cement walls. You got lethal fences that are basically encircled with serpentine wires, you know, and it's just like out in the middle of nowhere, you know? And so they do this for some reason. And when they do, it's almost like they come out feeling relieved. Like they feel so energized. They feel so great. And uh, because they also experience that therapeutic exchange, they get to share, they get to see, they get to give. And that's what they do. And they had to go through a process to being approved to go in there, it's just difficult. To be honest with you, I think the rigorous process that CDCR places on civilians that they're not paying, first and foremost, in comparison to what these correctional officers are getting paid to sit there, right, and supervised, right, in comparison to what these individuals are getting, to these volunteers who are coming in free at their time, and the process they have to go through is ridiculous, ridiculous. Yeah, so I think the prisons benefit greatly from having these volunteers come in because if they had to pay for all these services, it would definitely cost them more. But it would be great if they had paid services so that it's available to everybody all the time. And I'm wondering, somebody, and this, you know, you could share this from your own experience and maybe the people you befriended in prison, what was their experience? When you come into prison, I don't think the next day you're joining the programs. 
I'm assuming that maybe there is still some sort of anger and resentment. How long did it take you to start looking or accepting some of these programs? Uh, little by little, I think uh, years later, I started to really, what's that word, wrestle with resentment. Basically, a feeling that I place inside of my system, similar to like a drug, that with time, as long as you don't use that drug, it won't be in your system. That's far from reality. Resentment and these feelings are natural that will forever be in your system, right? That will be triggered with my perception of things. So what happened was it all began in 2009 or actually in 2008. My son, my oldest son, who was three and a half years old, you know, his mom got married and she had to get married. Of course, I incurred a 22 year sentence. Uh, I remember she told me one day, she said, uh, if you can get a nine year term, I will stay with you. And I told her, well, where am I going to get a nine-year term if they're offering me 22 years? <laughs> where does that come from? I mean, if I had a choice, right? I totally understood. Plus, I had to do some serious issues, right? I cheated on all my girlfriends because I had some insecurity issues. So, you know, I had trust issues and so forth. So anyways, in 2008, she disappears with my son uh, after bringing him to prison and so forth. I needed to find him. And in the process, I also needed to show that I was changing. So I had to start taking programs. Not because I wanted to change, but because I wanted to see my oldest son. He, of course, felt grief of losing me to prison. And so he would go to school and fight and scream and yell. And so uh, I was doing it just to want to see him. But to me, it was just to sit there. And just basically, I wanted to have something to submit to the courts. 2012, I was able to successfully file a petition after nine attempts, after nine months of relentlessly and pertinaciously trying to see my son. And of course, I wasn't granted that to see my boy by then. But uh, by that time, I had started forming a taste towards these programs. 2014, 15, that's when I started ABP and little by little, I liked it. I liked what it sounded like, you know? I liked the participation. I was still nervous, anxious, and dealing with feelings. But what had helped me all throughout was Proverbs and the biblical studies. That is where I found meaning. That's where I was able to ask questions. There was a, a book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes. To this day, it's my favorite book, the book of a wise King Solomon. But there was a verse that said, a live dog is better off than a dead lion. And so that right there was like, food because although I was in prison, I had a 22-year sentence, at least I wasn't dead. There was more hope, right? That's where I got my cup of tea. And in about 2015, 16, kind of started normalizing the self-help. And in, of course, 2008, 9, 10, I love psychology. That was my self-help. I used to watch college courses in my cell. I wasn't even enrolled, but I used to like taking notes. It sounds like you had a chance to transform and deal with some of the wounds you had acquired in life and now you're back in freedom and how does it feel I mean you've been in there for 14 years and what you had just described is your life is very controlled inside of prison there are not so many choices you have how easy is it to transition to the world where it's not only that you have the choices but you're supposed to choose it's nobody else does it for you 
Yes, good question. In prison, you were controlled to a large extent, but I had learned that the best way to have choices in prison was to not wait for them to tell me what to do. And I used to hate for them to tell me what to do. So guess what I would do? I would do it beforehand. It's like what I tell my son now, like, son, don't wait for me to ask you if you did your chores, you brush your teeth, do it beforehand. And that shows that you have a choice. So I wouldn't wait to take a shower at four o'clock when the shower's closed. I wouldn't wait to go use the bathroom at 4.30 before count at 4.45, because otherwise they would say it's count time, get on your bunk, right? I wouldn't wait for them to say yard is closed, rather I would already be inside the building and taking care of my business. And that also trickled into uh, my choices of vocations. Like the correctional counselor would say, you're gonna take this vocation called construction, whatever. And I said, no, I don't wanna take that. I'm not gonna do construction. I'm not gonna do it outside. I'm gonna pick rather uh, Microsoft Word, Excel and PowerPoint. I wanna take that class. I wanna take that vocation because that's what I believe I'm, I may use outside. And I'm gonna choose which one I want. So when I got out of prison, that was my main thing. And I had read a book, super cool book. Those who have more options are the ones who ultimately have a better chance of making it. And so if I didn't like that job, if I didn't like that environment, I had an option to go and try to seek a different job. It sounds like you're doing really well and you do have a supportive family, it sounds like too. Yes, oh, definitely. Uh, I have my wonderful mother I'm taking care of. She's 71 years old. She was there for me when I was in prison. Uh, she's divorced now. My stepdad is not in the picture, but I still, I text them, say hello to him. I get the chance now to go to store and buy my mother organic food. She likes the juice and she likes to eat nothing but organic. But guess what? I get to do that for her. I get to go and buy her her groceries. I spend $200 every time I go. And it feels good to pull out my debit card and pay for her groceries and come home and she jokes around and uh i have my son 16 year old son super good kid man uh you know he has all kinds of animals i got his tank he has all kinds of fishes in there and he has two different lizards he has uh cats he has two dogs he likes to take care of and and he has a hamster he told me that if he lost weight his doctor was having issues with his weight so he says if i lose weight 20 pounds will you give me a hamster You know, so now he has his hamster. So he's a good kid, uh, does well in school. He has different interests. He loves selling. He, you know, he's a natural seller like his dad. So uh, we went and played basketball this weekend uh, with some Jehovah Witnesses. We hung out, young kids, and also some other kids that were across the yard, or excuse me, the yard, the basketball court. They, we went and played uh, football with them, spoke to them a little bit about, you know, staying away from gangs and drugs and showed them a couple pictures of, where I was in prison and how I changed. And so I was trying to be a good influence to these kids, real good kids. So yeah, good support system, but I'm picking those wisely. You know, I, I learned you better choose what you want and you better go for it. Otherwise, others will choose it for you. And in the yes. next, let's say two or three years, what are you looking forward to? Two, three years. I want to be able to have established myself in my job, you know, I want to be able to be there long enough to become very good. Whatever I'm selling, I want to know how to do it. I want to know the process. I want to be able to get the leads, approach them, and just know what I'm talking about and do it well. 
and doing my own negotiation. I don't want someone to negotiate my deal because there's a risk for them to lose it because of their own desire and gaining as many leads, gaining as much of a reputation and contacts among uh, general contractors and business owners, like already establishing that relationship among a good number of them. To this day, like one thing that stands out is in prison, 14 years, you would go work, you would go outside to these programs, you would engage people, hang out, talk, but I would go home and decompress. Excuse me, I would go into a cell. And in all reality, it wasn't home. It was something that I had to accept. And I would just breathe and I would say hello to my cellmate. How you been? How was your day? Good, great. Okay, awesome. Well, now, you know, I go work. I'm outside and about. So when I come home, I still have to engage my son. I still have to talk to my mother. You know, I still now would have to speak to my wife. So I have to learn that, okay, it's not time to decompress. It's time to hang out and talk to them. But there also has to be a time to decompress. So, uh, so I'm looking forward to that, learning how to do that and uh, picking up a few more responsibilities among my religious community and ha having a wife. And even a home, getting a condo, getting that momentum and making, you know, enough to, to care for everything I need. Well, I certainly wish you all the best and, you know, that you may reach all these goals. You really deserve that. And I thank you also very much for telling your story and, you know, even going back to some moments that might have been really painful. So thank you very much for that. Well, thank you, Karen. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Today, you gave me the opportunity not to share where I had to accept and acknowledge that I have an issue, but you helped me retell my story of where I'm at in life today, which is, you know, helping others, which is feeling better about myself, share a, a better picture instead of that I started in prison, I have an issue with this, I have an issue with that, rather, you know, how I'm addressing it, you know, how I'm free now, life is good anywhere. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you. Of course, you're Thanks. welcome. Thanks for everyone else, everyone out there who helped me along the way and who's helping me along the way. I appreciate it. You know, so those people uh, that really saw us as, as humans, you know, so we appreciate those people because uh, we're all humans. We all make mistakes. What Chance is created in New York with cover art by Hernan Braberman and original music by Max Elias.